I want to, in view of the presence with us tonight of these young people, and we certainly did enjoy their part in the service, but I know it's hard for them to sit still for a considerable time. I want to just quickly come through to the book of Ezra tonight and uh, to deal with this, uh, the message of this book. Ezra, found together with those other two books with which it's usually linked, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these books cover one period in the history of Israel, that period in which they were in captivity in Babylon, and then the immediate period following their return to Jerusalem. By the way, the return of Israel to Jerusalem out of Babylon involved about 50,000 Jews, much, much less than the present return that is such a wonder of our own day. And if we feel that if the biblical record gives great importance to this return as it does, how much more is this present return going to be of great significance in the history of this nation? Now, in the Hebrew Bible, these books of Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, not two books, as we find in our English Bible. And the account, the events of these two books run parallel to one another. Now, that's a... That's a uh, departure from the traditional view. Most of the commentators on the scripture will say that Nehemiah follows Ezra chronologically. But uh, I believe that a careful study of these two books will indicate that these two events went on at the same time. Ezra is concerned with the building of the temple. Nehemiah is concerned with the building of the walls and the city of Jerusalem. But you remember, as we've been looking, tracing the history of God, the history of Israel, and God's dealing with them, we saw that the temple was the last thing to be destroyed when the nation fell into captivity. And just as it was the last uh, standing ground, if, you, if, if we may put it that way, of the Spirit of God, the last place to be destroyed in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the failure of an individual in his relationship to God, the temple standing for the spirit. So it is also the first place God begins when he sets about the work of restoration. And that's why Ezra is put first in this series, although Nehemiah really precedes it in chronology. And uh, God starts his work with the temple. You'll notice uh, the opening words of this book. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also putting it in writing. Now notice the last words of Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Same words, exactly. The, word, the book of Ezra, <coughs> therefore, begins right where Chronicles leaves off. And this is one reason why it's often been felt that it has the same writer that Ezra wrote both books. But Ezra, therefore, becomes a picture to us of the work of God in the restoration of a heart, 
that has fallen into sin. It can be on an individual basis. It can be on a church, a local church basis, a denomination. Perhaps some of the items that were shared with us in the window of the world tonight indicate the crying need today of a return to God on the part of some of the great God-honored denominations of our day. Or it can be the work of God in a nation, bringing it back from secularism and materialism to true spiritual knowledge and strength. In any case, it always follows this pattern, the pattern depicted here in the book of Ezra. This is the picture of how God works when he sets about to restore a heart that has fallen into sin. The way back would be a good title for this book. Now, there are two divisions of the book, and they fall very naturally uh, in line with the ministry of two men. There's the ministry, first of all, of Zerubbabel in chapters 1 through 6, and the ministry of Ezra in chapters 7 through 10. And both of these men led some of the captives of Babylon back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, interestingly enough, is a descendant of David. He's of the kingly line. He belongs to the house of David. While Ezra was a descendant of Aaron, the priest. And he's a priest. And in this you have clearly outlined the need for the work of a king and a priest. Now, restoration consists of that. The work of a king is to build, or in this case, to rebuild. The work of a priest is to cleanse. And both are essential in the work of restoring someone who has fallen into a, into a sinful state. Uh, restoration is rebuilding in the individual life the control of the Spirit of God by obedience to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it involves his ministry as king over our lives. It means the recognition, again, of the right of God to own us, to direct us, to, uh, to cancel out our plans and superimpose his upon them, to change us, to, to uh, make the, ma the decisions of our life, both major and minor. And restoration always means cleansing as well. The spirit and the soul cleansed by the ministry of our great high priest, who uh, on the confession, the earnest confession of a heart, washes away the guilt, tidies up the past, restores us to a place of fellowship and of uh, blessedness in his sight. Now, return is always the work of God's grace. You'll notice verse 1 says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And verse 5 says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. God always takes the initiative. No one would ever come back to Christ in after a falling into a sinful experience unless God brought him back. This is indicated so clearly here in the case of these Israelites. When they'd gone into Babylon, they became a different kind of people. Dr. McGee has pointed out that while they were in Israel, they were sheep keepers, shepherds. When they went to Babylon, 
They could no longer keep sheep, so they became shopkeepers, merchants. And they became very successful in that. So much so that this has stamped itself as the image of the Jew everywhere on earth today. They're the merchants of earth. And in Babylon, they started a number of chain stores, Macy's, Emporium, and uh, Gimbel's, and some other leading department stores, and became so prosperous that they did not want to go back to Jerusalem. They became lost in materialism, though they were still slaves and exiles from their own land. Many of them refused to return when God opened the door. But the Spirit of God stirred up the hearts of some of them and made them unsatisfied with material prosperity. As perhaps some of us have felt, that things will never, will never satisfy the deep-seated cry of the human spirit. And when that feeling is there, it's an indication that God the Spirit is stirring us up to return, to rebuild the things that make for spiritual strength. Now, very quickly, under Zerubbabel, you have the return, the first return. And uh, this great kingly descendant in general led back about 50,000 people from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the story of that return is given to us in chapters 1 and 2. And when they came to Jerusalem, it was the seventh month of the year, just in time for the Feast of the Tabernacles of the Jews, the Feast of Trumpets. The, the time when Israel dwelt in booths to remind them of their pilgrim nature. And incidentally, this Feast of Trumpets looks forward to the eventual regathering of Israel from its vast worldwide dispersion into the land for the millennium, and is the feast that is particularly associated with restoration. And it was at this seventh month that the remnant came back from Babylon and came into Jerusalem. Their first act was to build an altar because on the site of the temple, in the midst of the ruins of the temple, they erected, first of all, out under the open skies, an altar unto God. And there they began to worship again and offer sacrifice as the law of Moses had bade them. And this is significant because it is the first act of a heart that really desires to return from wandering in the ways of darkness and, and uh, the ways of the world into real fellowship with God. It's to erect an altar. An altar is always the recognition of ownership. It's a symbol that God has the right to us, and we restore ourselves to that personal relationship to him. And therefore, an altar almost invariably involves sacrifice and worship, sacrifice and praise. Sacrifice recognizing the truth, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. And worship rejoicing again in the glory of a restored relationship, where once again the heart is being ministered to by the only one who can meet its needs. And it results in a heart of praise. A man said to, was telling me this morning about, reminded me of a time when he took off work and, uh, made an appointment to come and see me and talk about his prayer life. And he said he brought along uh, sheets of paper that he'd written down all the things that he'd been trying to pray for, his prayer list. Had three or four sheets covered with long lists of names. And he said, you know, he said, I, 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 I have a great deal of trouble with this. He said, I, I find that 
I, I uh, experienced difficulty remembering all these things and going through these lists, and it sounds so mechanical, so empty. And he reminded me, he said, you know, you said to me, why don't you just forget all this and just spend your time for a few prayer sessions anyway, just praising the Lord. And he said, I went back and he said, I was mad. He said, the idea of me taking my time off to come off work and come down and talk to you and all you had to say to me was, why don't you spend your time praising the Lord? He said, I wanted some help in how to organize this and how to handle it a little better. But he said, after I got over my mad, I tried it and I found it worked. There was a sense of restoration, a sense of restored personal fellowship. And that's what God is after. That's why the altar is the important thing when you begin this work of restoration. Then the second thing, they laid the foundation of the temple. And it was met with mingled joy and sorrow. In verse 3, when the foundations of the, uh, chapter 3, verse uh, uh, 12, when the foundation of the temples were let, was laid, all the people shouted with a great shout. When they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard afar. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever come back to God after a time of coldness and withdrawal, captivity, to the, the power of sin? And when you've come back, there was a great sense of joy as the foundations of fellowship were relayed by the Spirit. But with it was a sense of regret and a sense of remembrance of what had been lost and the wasted years that had, had ensued, that had followed. This is exactly what's portrayed here. You couldn't tell the difference. There were mingled tears of joy and sorrow as the people saw the temple being relayed. And then the third factor in this return under Zerubbabel covering chapters 4 through 6, is the opposition that immediately developed. We have seen all the way through the Word of God that there is a force at work in every human heart, as in every factor in world affairs, that immediately rises up in opposition to everything God attempts to do. There is a force that is found in every human individual that uh, resists with all, its, with all its enmity and hate against the work of the Spirit of God. And this force immediately makes itself manifest. Now, it's very interesting how it does it. There's a great lesson here. There is opposition. And first, it appears as friendly solicitude. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Incidentally, this is the beginning of the Samaritans. 
And you remember how frequently they appear in the New Testament. These are the Samaritans. Worshipping the same God, they said. Let us help you. We'd like to join with you in this enterprise. You're rebuilding the temple? Fine. We'd be glad to do it. And they come with obvious, earnest, open-hearted, friendly invitation to participate in this work. Now, that's a very subtle, uh, subtle temptation, isn't it? It's not very difficult to say uh, no to an enemy when he comes breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Ah, but when he comes dripping with solicitude and offers to help you in your projects, it's very difficult to say no. And the only thing that will make you do it is a heart that is willing to be obedient to the word of God, as these people were. We read verse 3, but Zerubbabel... Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. That may have seemed very churlish, but it was not merely captiousness that made them reply that way. For God had commanded that Israel was not to fellowship with other nations, was not to engage them in the enterprises that concerned their faith. Not because it was wrong for one nation to intermingle with another. This has been twisted and distorted and applied to situations that it has no uh, application to today. It simply means that it is a picture for us that God rejects utterly the philosophies of the world in attempting to carry out the work that he's engaged in, in the earth. There is a worldly religion. There is a, a uh, philosophy that tries to interject worldly concepts, worldly philosophies, worldly methods into the ways of God's people. And God has simply made clear by this picture that this is to be rejected. All this philosophy, which the world would... Uh, turn to, to defend its actions and its attitudes, is quite contrary to the work of the Spirit of God. For the world reflects the spirit of the devil, who is the god of this age, which is, advance yourself. Do this for your own glory. Build these things up for your own endeavor. Use religious ways by, so that you can advance your own purposes and win your way to the place of Admiration and power and fame or whatever it, your heart desires. Use these religious ways to achieve self-satisfaction. And this principle is rejected here. And it immediately results in a stripping of the veil. For the friendship that was offered turns immediately to hate. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And the rest of the account in these next two chapters is the story of how successful they were in stopping the work of building the temple by a deliberate attempt to frustrate these people and mock them and taunt them and discourage them from their work and stop them from doing what God had told them to do 
and by legal means to undermine their authority and cancel out the right that they had to build. This is what goes on any time anybody wants to stand for God. I brought along with me tonight a, an article that's appearing in this newest edition of the Christian Reader, written for young people. It's called Watch Out for the Mockers. And it says, it begins this way, Have they taken over your school? They're probably part of the in-group, the kids who make sure they're wearing the right style sweaters and shoes, using the right expressions, and hanging around with the right kids. Or they may be the school rebels. They may even be most of your student body, week after week, chopping and mocking their way through the corridors. They mock the kid who decides to be honest about everything and never takes advantage of the system. They chop up the killjoys who won't really get with it in the parties after the games. Teachers, parents, old virtues like patriotism, anything that's not currently in gets devastated by slicing words. No, not just the fun time banter in the lunchroom, but a hacking away at the old values and anything that doesn't conform. How does this affect a Christian? If you say or do something considered corny, icy silence or slicing mockery hits you. Bucking this can mean pressure. And you're influenced by the ideas around you probably more than you realize, from classmates and TV, radio, newspapers, and magazines. Everything can affect your pattern of thought. It's easy to start falling into a pattern of mocking the Christian idealists, those who are throwing every ounce of energy into the cause for which Christ died. You can become a part of your teenage culture so that you're thinking just like everyone else, losing your Christian integrity and system of values. You can become a mocker yourself. Can you imagine what David or Jeremiah or Paul would have been like if they'd been hip to the mocker's kind of thinking? Picture these scenes. David. Who? Me? Fight that giant? A guy could get killed that way. <laughs> Let's face it. That's Saul's problem. He gets to play king. Let him earn his big fat paycheck. Jeremiah. If you think I'm going to keep telling those Mickey Mouse juveniles that judgment is coming, forget it. They can't get a thing through their heads. They just mock it up anyway. Or Paul, go stomping all over the world preaching? <laughs> You'll never retire at an early age that way. No thanks. I'll find a quiet place where I can make tents and write nature poetry. And as Paul wrote to the Galatians, he that is born of the flesh persecutes he that is born of the spirit. And this is the picture we have here. Now, it was quite successful in Ezra. The work was stopped for 16 years, and the temple lay half completed, ran, overrun with weeds and grass. The worship of it ceased again. And then God answered by sending two priests, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. These two men were God's instrument to move among the people. And he moved in the hearts of kings, Darius and Artaxerxes. And the minute the, uh, the, uh, the people began to turn back to him, he turned the heart of these kings. And uh, they issued a decree that started the temple work again. And finally, the work was finished. In chapter 6, we read they were, the work was finished. 
And the first thing they did was celebrate the Passover. That is the mark of the beginning of, of their life under God. Just as you can never make sense out of your conversion unless you're in fellowship with the living God. You have nothing to celebrate. You have nothing to thank God for unless you're enjoying the glory and the light of heaven upon your heart right now. It's only when you're in fellowship with a temple built that the Passover can mean anything to you. And the latter part of the book, just very quickly, is the ministry of Ezra, who also led a return to the land. A most remarkable man, this man, a priest of the line of Aaron. Verse 6, we're told of chapter 7, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he had asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Wouldn't you like to have that written of you? The king granted him all that he had asked. What kind of a man is this? That a heathen Gentile king thinks so highly of him that he'll give him anything he asks. Anything he asks. Well, the secret of this man's life is given in verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. <laughs> That's something else, isn't it? We're all Bible students. Are we all Bible performers, doers? To study the, heart, the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and ordinance in Israel. And as a result, he could ask anything of the king. He'd give him anything he wanted. Now, this man is a man of the word. And therefore, God sends him to Jerusalem to strengthen and beautify the temple. And that's the work of the Word of God in our lives. It's to strengthen and beautify the place of our fellowship with God within. And he came to Jerusalem and he found an incredible condition obtaining. Chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, at, this is Ezra writing, and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness... The hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. And what does this say? Simply that they were starting the whole wretched mess all over again. This is what broke down the strength of this nation. This is what undermined the, the power of God in their midst. And finally dispersed the people, broke up the tribes, separated them into two nations. And at last, as they carried on this idolatrous practice, God delivered them into the hands of their captives. Captors. And now here they are. After 70 years, they haven't learned a thing. You see, the flesh never changes. No matter how long you may walk in the Spirit, you will never get to the place where you cannot revert instantaneously to the worst that you ever were. If you depart from... Dependence upon the Spirit of God. They're right back in the same old thing. And Ezra says, 
When I heard this, I rent my garments and my mantle, and I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. Unbelievable. And the rest of the book is how he prayed and confessed this great sin before God. And God was gracious and moved in the hearts of the people. And the leaders came in broken-hearted contrition to Ezra and acknowledged their wrong. And a proclamation was uttered. And the people assembled together. And it happened to be a day when it was raining. And despite the rain, the people stood in the rain, thousands of them, in front of the temple. And there they confessed their guilt and the fact that they had disobeyed God. And they agreed to put away the wives and children that they had married outside the will of God. Now, this is a, a hurtful thing, isn't it? It isn't easy. This is what Jesus meant when he said, If a man love not his wife, or hate not his wife and children and lands and houses and all that he had, he cannot be my disciple. This relationship with God comes first. Now, it doesn't mean that a man is to put away his wife today. This is a symbolic teaching here. It means, rather, that a man here is to, that we're to put away that which is stems from the flesh, which is always pictured by these, these tribes in the land, these Canaanite tribes. But we love the flesh, don't we? We like, as I said this morning, we like to feel angry and resentful at others. We love to nurse a grudge and cherish feelings of bitterness, and to keep an unforgiving spirit burning away in our heart against somebody. We love it. We don't want to give it up. These things can cause physical ailments among us. And perhaps more than 50% of the, of the nervous and, and uh, uh, physical problems that we suffer are due to attitudes that are wrong. But when someone points it out to us, we would rather go on having the problem than change the spirit or the attitude. It, it's hard. It, it was hard to put away their wives and children. But they recognized that the only chance there was of being restored to the place of fellowship with the living God and finding the power of God manifest once again in their midst was that they be obedient to his word. If your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it aside. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, Jesus said. Be ruthless in these things. Put this away. And the book closes with the story of these people putting this, these things away. The temple cleansed and restored. It was to this temple, this very temple, some centuries later that the Lord Jesus came. And the first thing he had to do when he come, came was to go in and cleanse it. Cast out the money changers. Cleanse the temple. And the great lesson of this book is, in obedience lies strength. The way back is always opened by grace. But it can only be taken as we're prepared to be obedient to what God has said. Thank you, Father, for this insight into thy word again. Give us obedient hearts that we may walk in ways pleasing to thee that the inner temple of our soul, our spirit, may be rich and redolent with thy fragrance and presence. In Christ's name, amen.